Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk/greattalent to see how you can work, live, and move to the UK. A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So, for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only one thousand five hundred and ninety nine dollars, a saving of three hundred dollars only for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Other Hand, a podcast brought to you by CJP Economics, a collaboration between Jim Power and Chris Johns, where we discuss the intersection between politics, finance, and economics. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found at our Substack website, and that Substack site also contains our extensive body of written work. Thanks for listening and reading. If you like our work, please share with your friends and sign up to our newsletter. Hi, Jim. Great to be talking again. We've got a packed agenda today, as usual. We're going to talk about Brexit.、Uh, inevitably, we're going to talk a little bit about inflation. We keep trying not to, but it's always in the headlines, and so there's some news out of the eurozone that merits our attention. And of course, we're going to talk about COVID. COVID corner might be minimising what we're going to talk about today. It's going to be a big discussion. About COVID, particularly in the light of the announcement that、uh, Ireland is going to require testing for any entrant into the country from Friday. But to start with, with Brexit,、uh, I, get, I get asked a lot about buyers' remorse and whether or not the Brexiteers will ever admit to any regret over the promises they made, the things that they said would happen that haven't happened, the names that they called the Remain campaign. In the light of the evidence that we've had, would any of them ever、uh, say a mea culpa and admit to getting it wrong? And I've always thought that they wouldn't.、Uh, but one notable person recently has come close to it. He hasn't quite got there yet. A notable Brexiteer called Fraser Nelson. Many listeners to the podcast won't really have heard of him. He's a Spectator, Telegraph type journalist who was a prominent Brexiteer、uh, during the campaign and indeed post Britain leaving. The、uh, Euro, Euro, European Union in a Q and A presentation, I think hosted by the Telegraph or some journalistic organisation,、uh, said 
specifically that the promise is made by somebody called Daniel Hannon, who may be somebody that your listeners have heard of. I know you have, Jim. Uh, none of them have come true. It's interesting because it is a problem of Brexiteer uh, coming up with buyer's remorse. And he went through all the things that were promised by the Brexiteers that simply haven't come true. And it's inter- Hannon's reaction to it is interesting because Hannon was there when this was being said. And he said that it, his excuse for trade collapsing with the European Union, Britain's trade with the European Union collapsing, is that be- it's because the European Union is in terminal decline. That's the kind of Brexiteering answer that I would always expect in this situation. And I expect Fraser Nelson's buyer's remorse is going to be the exception rather than the rule. But one thing that Nelson did say that did strike me, it wasn't just the list of things that the Brexiteers promised and have not delivered. In fact, most of what what Remain said has happened. Nelson said that, uh, that the European disease of populism has not crossed the channel into the UK. Now, anybody that observes Boris Johnson's government and thinks that it is anything other than a populist uh, piece of fluff, I think, is is kidding themselves. And so it's extraordinary that even somebody like Fraser Nelson thinks that uh, populism is not present in the UK, um, and indeed that he blames Europe for it. So they keep blaming Europe for all of their own ills, and nothing much has changed. But one of the things that Nelson did talk about, of course, was the hoped-for boost to global Britain global trading booming in the wake of Brexit just hasn't happened. And all that has happened is that Liz Truss has gone around the world rolling over the pre-existing trade deals with, the, with that uh, Britain had with places like Australia as a result of membership of the European Union. There's been no great boost to trade there. And I think, Jim, you're going to tell us now in a second just how much trade diversion is taking place countries like Ireland are starting to circumvent the UK. And I think there, there's been some data this week confirming that, Jim. There is a proposed motorway that's the subject of intense controversy between Limerick and Cork. Okay, if you've ever driven that road, it's, yeah, it's, it's a dreadful road. It's absolutely dreadful. And I saw stats at the weekend looking at the number of traffic accident deaths that have occurred on it over the years. And um, I have always well i've argued for some time that rather than building a motorway from limerick to cork um, and this is going in a little bit to irish geography that you might be that familiar with chris but uh, i would argue that we'd be better off building a motorway or a decent dual carriageway from limerick to waterford and the southeast into ross lair harbour and the reason why, and of course, you get a connection in care onto the motorway from Dublin to Cork. Okay, clearly upgrade the Limerick Cork Road, but the main um, upgrade, I believe, should happen on Limerick to Rosslare. And the reason why I believe that is because I have believed that in a Brexit world, uh, Rosslare would become a much more influential harbour for Irish trade and you know transporting goods that are going to Europe from the Midwest region down to Rosslare does make a lot of sense. And um, yesterday, the Irish Maritime Development Office uh, released statistics showing that goods shipped directly from Ireland to the European Union, bypassing the UK land bridge, are up 50% since Brexit commenced. And it's clear that Irish exporters are now seeking aggressively to avoid the UK land bridge. Uh, There are now 
32 new ferry services from Ireland uh, to continental Europe, places like La Havre, Cherbourg, Dunkirk and Zeebrug in Belgium. Uh, would be the, the main ports that are being targeted directly out of Ireland now. Um, freight volumes, on the other hand, from Dublin to Liverpool and Holyhead are down by 19% in the first nine months of the year. Um, and Ross Lair to Pembroke and Fishgar down 30%. And now one third of all rural or roll on, roll off traffic um, now op- out of Ireland now operates on direct routes to the European Union. In 2019, that was 16%. So the bottom line from these statistics is that um, Irish exporters are voting with their feet. They are moving, as I say, aggressively to avoid the UK land bridge and access the European Union directly. So uh, that is a very positive thing from an Irish perspective, given um, all of the um, logistical difficulties that Brexit is creating. Uh, but you, you kind of wonder what impact that is going to have on um, a lot of those ports um, in the United Kingdom, you know, particularly in uh, Wales and so on. I think it's going to do a lot of economic damage to those. So I think that's another indication of the damage that Brexit is is doing to the UK. Um, separately, the ONS, the Office for National Statistics in the UK, published data yesterday looking at the regional economic performance in the United Kingdom um, over the last 18 months or so. And amazingly, um, and this is amazing because Northern Ireland has traditionally been one of the biggest underperformers at a reasonable regional level in the United Kingdom. Uh, but Northern Ireland has been the strongest growing region in the United Kingdom um, since since um, COVID commenced. And um, the, the economy is now just 0.3% below where it was in the final quarter of 2019, just pre-COVID. Um, and you contrast that with the West Midlands is 10% below quarter four. 2019. So it is clear that despite, and we've discussed this before, despite all of this rubbish about the Northern Ireland Protocol and how bad it is for Northern Ireland, uh, it is clear that the Northern Ireland Protocol is delivering. And it's not rocket science to figure out why. I mean, Northern Ireland basically has free access to the EU single market and the UK market. As we've described it many times before, Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds, but just doesn't recognise it. These are facts and data, Jim, your forte, and they speak for themselves, I think. Uh, the, the politician or the sociologist, perhaps, might say they're all very well, but people's opinions these days don't deal in facts. They, they deal with emotions and feelings, and it's the, the feeling that they are being cut off from Great Britain that is affecting politics in Northern Ireland, and that these sorts of numbers, these sorts of facts, this data that they are benefiting from their economic position in two free trade areas, two single market areas, is in fact neither here nor there. Um, In the same way that I began the podcast by talking about whether or not facts will ever impinge upon Brexiteers' opinions, whether it will ever cause anybody to change their mind. And I said it looked like one prominent Brexiteer might have changed his mind a little bit but he's unlikely to be followed by many. Do you think these, that there's a read across to the political situation in the North and that the opposition to the protocol will still be 
as strong as it is, despite all of these facts? Yeah, I, I don't see it changing because I, I look at, I observe the debate up there and um, you, you look at the entrenched views on the union side and you realise that, you know, the facts don't matter here, that, you know, this is a political ideological issue, full stop. And um, it, it is very clear uh, listening to the majority of businesses in Northern Ireland that they regard the Northern Ireland Protocol as good for Northern Ireland business, as indeed the data um, would certainly support. Uh, but I, I just don't see that changing. I mean, that, that sort of political ideological blindness is so embedded in the culture up there that um, it, it, I just don't see it changing, um, which, yeah, well, which, which is very it's not no. It's not just embedded up there, of course. It's embedded in the Brexiteering mindset, which is not unrelated to this discussion. Of course. Anything else going on in, in Ireland specifically, Jim, at the moment with respect to data releases? Yeah, the, um, a recruitment firm, Hayes, H-A-Y-S, um, published a survey this morning showing that 40% of Irish firms are now stating that staff shortages are undermining their ability to deliver projects and 30% say that staff shortages are actually stalling plans for expansion. So despite the fact, you know, we still have a considerable level of unemployment, COVID-related, the labour market is improving dramatically. Labour shortages are are becoming a huge issue for many firms. And um, when you look at Ireland in 2022 and the potential for the sort of growth, strong growth that is expected by most people at this stage, you'd have to say that labour constraints probably pose the biggest impediment to the economy realizing its full potential and um the you, you can okay you can identify certain sectors where it's very obvious uh hospitality and retail are two sectors that are really exposed but this haze survey as far as i understand it would suggest that it is much more uh widespread across different sectors in the economy so this is not unique to ireland uh, the UK, the United States, similar problems being faced at the moment. Uh, the sort of mass resignation out of certain sectors is impacting uh, the presence of employment support still for people who are affected by COVID um, is probably a factor here to some extent, although becoming less of a factor. So um, it's a big it's a big challenge. There's no doubt about that. And it's a challenge uh, that business is definitely feeling at the moment. Yeah, labour shortages, of course, spell lots of things. Uh, one is our old friend inflation, yeah. particularly wage inflation. And in some ways, Jim, as, as we've said many times, that's a good thing because the inequality debate, ultimately, if it is to be resolved, it's not a debate, it's a thing. It's real. Uh, across different countries, it's uh, has different degrees of reality. But to the extent that uh, we don't want the populist wave reaching Irish shores, or indeed any of our shores, uh, one of the causes of populism, which is low pay for too many people, economic progress not being shared equally, that's what inequality is, a bit of wage inflation would probably be a good thing. Uh, Of course, you can have too much of a good thing, and it's looking like there is a little bit Around the world, we've talked specifically in recent podcasts about Irish inflation data and US and UK inflation data, but we've just had some Eurozone inflation numbers, which were pretty horrible. 
the the number expected uh, for the most recent month was four and a half percent was what economists had forecast year over year four and a half percent inflation for the euro area and it came in at 4.9 now 4.9 percent inflation in the eurozone has never been seen before ever in over two decades of the euro's existence we've not had an inflation rate as high as it is do you think that the ecb's response to this which so far has been behind the federal reserve in the united states behind the british central bank the bank of england in either doing something with respect to printing money, which is what the Fed is up to, or promising higher interest rates imminently, which is what the Bank of England is up to. Do you think we're heading down that direction for the ECB now? Do you think that they will be scared enough by this 4.9% print to start muttering about taking their foot off the monetary pedal, to start hinting that maybe, just maybe, Eurozone interest rates are going to be on the rise next year as well? Or is it going to be more of the same from Christine Lagarde that this is all temporary, that it's all going to wash through and we're very relaxed? I wish I could answer that question honestly. Well, I'll answer it honestly, but I, I wish I could answer it definitively. Um, 4.9% is an incredible number for the euro area. 6% in Germany uh, is totally catastrophic from a uh, an historical German perspective. So uh, so that that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, uh, it is definitely the case that there is still, and there was coming into COVID, there is coming out of COVID, a lot more spare capacity in the Eurozone economy. And um, I, I think still, and Philip Lane, whom we discussed last week, the chief economist at the European Central Bank, would be, I think, very much of the view insofar as I can interpret his public utterances would be of the view that the economic imperative far outweighs the inflation imperative at the moment and that the ECB would be very concerned about increasing interest rates um, in the current environment of uncertainty. And of course, with the Omicron um, variant of COVID-19, um, you know, th- that will definitely exacerbate uh, the downward pressures on Eurozone economic activity. So increasing interest rates against that sort of backdrop to me would not make a lot of sense. Um, the European Central Bank, I believe, is still of the view that this is transitory. The transitory is clearly becoming longer, but we are still dealing in exceptional circumstances. And the Omicron clearly you know, exacerbates those exceptional circumstances. So I, I don't see the European Central Bank actually changing tack for the foreseeable future. I'll probably be proven wrong by tomorrow evening. But but that would be my sense at the moment. It's it's a sense of relaxation. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right to say that we don't know. Um, but I think it's important that we lay out the issues. Markets, of course, don't know either. And the links between COVID, the new variant of COVID, and central bank policy are difficult to trace out. Initially, of course, when it first broke, we knew that that meant easier monetary policy. And that helped markets after their initial fall nearly two years ago, and they went on quite a tear afterwards. The news of the variant last week sent markets down a lot. Then at the beginning of this week, they had a bit of a bounce. And as we speak, they're falling again. Uh, That's just, I think, expected volatility. You would have forecast that. One would have forecast that in the wake of the news flow that we've had uh, up and down a lot and a lot more volatility that we've had because it is incredibly uncertain. 
And it's been made more uncertain, those links between COVID and monetary policy, because it isn't as simple as last time. It isn't just about saying, oh, well, there's going to be more COVID because of the new variant. Therefore, there's going to be more monetary ease. The markets have sold off uh, today a lot as we're speaking, partly because of that COVID uncertainty. But there hasn't been any really new news about that. It's more to do with the central bank in the United States saying that they're now more worried than they were about the price pressures caused by the supply constraints that have been caused by COVID and that therefore they might actually be taking their foot off the monetary pedal even faster uh, than previously suggested. And markets don't like that, so they're selling off. So it's all it's all very messy. Uh, but I, I guess that introduces COVID, Jim, and we should begin our COVID corner in the time that we've got left to us. Uh, we've, we've got this new variant. Uh, I noticed that it's an anagram of uh, moronic, and I'd like to uh, begin uh, COVID Corner by suggesting that the announcement by, by Simon Coveney over the weekend welcoming Britain's decision to implement the terms of the common travel area and not impose any new restrictions, any new testing requirements on Irish visitors to the United Kingdom. Coveney, of course, welcomed that. And he's part of the government today who has not followed suit in that Yet again, the terms of the common travel area are not being applied symmetrically. Uh, He might welcome the fact that Britain's not testing Irish people coming into the UK, but he's going to test Britons and Irish and anybody else coming into Ireland from the UK. And I would suggest, given my opening remark about that anagram, that that policy is moronic. But what do you think? Oh, I I actually hadn't spotted that anagram, um, but... Now that you mention it, uh, it, it definitely resonates. Um, you know, there was and there is that incredible inconsistency between um, Ireland and the UK in relation to the common travel area, um, which is not good. I mean, um, that there should be a common approach to that. And uh, the UK came out pretty quickly and said what its approach was. So I think the Irish government actually should have adopted the same approach. Uh, but um, the notion of moronic actually becomes more obvious in other parts of government rather than Simon Coveney, I think. Um, Stephen Donnelly yesterday was talking about um, a number of things, but one was the antigen testing. And um, he has now backtracked on the notion of the government actually subsidizing uh, the free provision of antigen testing kits. Um, and he's basically arguing that the market is now after looking after that the price is there. So in other words, Aldi and Lidl are now driving Irish health policy. Uh, bizarre in the extreme, um, particularly if you consider that in the United Kingdom, antigen tests are freely available for anybody who wants them. Um, D- Stephen Donnelly was also talking about uh, the pantomime season. And um, there's a lot of pantomimes in production at the moment, given the time of the year it is. And uh, there's been a lot of uncertainty over whether children should be going to these pantomimes or not at this juncture. So he basically said yesterday that the pantomimes should go ahead, but that children shouldn't attend. Uh, <laughs> yeah. right? Well, that, 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 that's a kind of a pantomime in and of itself. Isn't uh, it, it is. It's, you, co- you couldn't make it up. You know, you really could not make it up. Um, it's extraordinary yeah. stuff. And, and of course... Uh, what we're seeing here, Chris, is just ongoing um, 
shooting themselves in the foot by the government parties. And of course, as we've often said, uh, there is only one winner in all of this moronic behaviour from government, um, and that is Sinn Féin. And, and that's been amply demonstrated in the opinion polls, you know, with Sinn Féin continuing to build significant leads over um, the second party, Fine Gael. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's moronic. I mean, we've, we, we, we've seen, you know, clearly the world has changed a lot over the last few days in relation to Omicron. Um, Killian the Gascon um, came out yesterday saying that it won't be a traditional Irish Christmas. We cannot afford to do that again. Um, people going to restaurants and pubs before Christmas and intergenerational mixing over the Christmas would be a disaster. Um, that That is pretty extraordinary stuff and just shows we have made no progress since the beginning of the COVID crisis. Uh, Germany, the German government, the new SPD, Greens, FDP um, coalition government has called on an army general to head its COVID crisis management team. And uh, Germany has not been perfect during COVID, but I think, uh, you know, this is a clear demonstration um, that the Germans are intent on trying to do something serious about this. I obviously think that that sort of appointment um, won't, won't go down well in all circles, but it just shows uh, the attitude of the German government. Uh, we had the Moderna chief executive, Stefan Bansell, um, this morning foreseeing a material drop in the effectiveness of current jabs against Omicron. So there's, there's, there's a, a lot of stuff coming out that is really, you know, regurgitating all of this fear that is inherent in people. Um, I think it's going to have a huge impact on people's personal behavior, of some people's personal behavior over the coming weeks. And for the hospitality sector here that is still open, um, you know, it's it's going to be a pretty dire um, three or four weeks, I would have thought. Um, I was in town myself on Sunday evening and um, apart from lots of Bohemians and St. Pat's supporters around after the FAI Cup final, the other thing that was noteworthy was, you know, a lot of restaurants, coffee shops were really, really quiet. And we've we've heard some horror stories from restaurateurs about the value of business that has been cancelled since the CMO's initial comments, um, I think, last week. So it's a, it, it's, it's a pretty depressing spectre at the moment. There is no doubt about that. And um, it's also clear that the notion of living with COVID um, certainly has not made much progress. Yeah, it, it, I find a lot of government policy everywhere, not just in Ireland, uh, extraordinary because I was listening to an interview with a scientist and we've all done this over the last few days. Loads of scientists have been interviewed on TV, radio, media about what they think about this new variant. What do we know? What do we don't know? And one scientist said, look, you've just interviewed loads of us. Um, I'm the latest in a long line of very qualified people that you've asked all these questions about the new variant and all we're doing if we're honest is inventing new ways to say i don't know and you talked about your own honest answer to a question earlier on this was a very honest answer and the thing that strikes me is that one must be very suspicious of anybody that says they purport to know anything including the head of moderna at the moment because i i've seen nothing uh, to confirm what looked to me like him just speaking out of well, his gut instinct, shall we say, rather than anything that it, that he didn't cite any evidence for his conclusion. 
the the World Health Organization produced something this week that on, on three headings about what we want to know but don't. They talked about transmissibility, transmissibility, and the World Health Organization said it is not yet clear whether Omicron is more transmissible. It talked about the severity of the disease as being another important heading. And it said it is not yet clear whether infection from Omicron causes more severe disease. The third heading, the third thing that it quite rightly says that we need to know stuff about is the effectiveness of vaccines. And the World Health Organization went on to say that we are working with technical partners to understand the potential impact of this variant on our existing countermeasures, our vaccines. So under all of these three key headings, the World Health Organization said, we know nothing. And that's what this scientist was trying to say. We know nothing. Now, what we don't get is a health minister from really anywhere, particularly in Ireland, standing up and saying, we know nothing, and therefore we, know, we must uh, fit, hope for the best, but plan for the worst and come up with measures that are proportionate to that and tell us what they're going to do if it is the worst possible situation. If it is as bad as perhaps it could be, in other words, that this is very transmissible, causes severe disease and does evade the vaccine, we're going to need a new vaccine. Where are the plans for that? I hear from the companies, Moderna and Pfizer in particular, that they are getting ready, but I've heard nothing from governments, Irish, British or American, that say this is how we're working with these companies to make sure that if we need them, the new vaccines are going to be ready as soon as possible. Uh, and ultimately, I think it comes down to politicians saying, oh, we need to be seen to be doing something. We have no idea what it is that we should be doing, but we've got to do something. Doing nothing is not politically acceptable. So they do something. And the, the things that they do, for example, by asking for antigen and PCR testing for anybody coming from Britain into Ireland, are based on no science whatsoever, uh, will have no effect whatsoever but tick the box of being seen to do something. And one would have hoped that we'd move beyond this, doing things for the sake of doing them, doing things that have no evidence base. And in this particular area, I think that it's not just more of the same nonsense from politicians, uh, not following the science, not following the evidence, just being seen to do something. With the common travel area, Jim, you're playing with fire. And I know that this is an old hobby horse of mine. I've been driven nuts for years by the fact that the British uh, facilitate the common travel area at British airports by allowing people to get to Heathrow and Gatwick and elsewhere without having to show passports, going straight through as if you've landed in London from Manchester or Glasgow. And it's as if you are an internal UK passenger, common travel area passenger, which is what that agreement is supposed to do. And we're, we're still... Uh, asked to show our passports at the Dublin and Cork airports, which uh, is an inconvenience, but it's not, it's not that big a deal. But it is one aspect of the common travel area that's been applied asymmetrically for decades. Uh, during the first phase of the pandemic, the common travel area was applied by the UK in its entirety, but not by Ireland. And here we go again. I'm not saying that this is going to lead to the CTA collapsing or anything like that. But if those lazy journalists at the Daily Mail or the Daily Telegraph ever got hold of the idea that the Irish are not applying the common travel area and the British are, I can bet you what the headlines would be. And if the common travel area was ever called into question as a result of these policies, it would be a tragedy because, of course, the common travel area gives me the right to live 
and work in Ireland should I so choose again. Uh, it gives you the right to come over here at any time to work, to live, to visit without any, supposedly without any restrictions. And it would be a tragedy if, if that uh, right, which of course predates the European Union by a long way, all the way back to the early 1920s, was ever to be called in question. So I think you're playing with fire by not uh, applying the, the common travel area symmetrically, irrespective of the, the health arguments, the scientific arguments, which don't, I think, support what it is that you're doing. I think you're playing with political fire. It's a small thing, but I think it is, it is worth remarking on. Do you, how do you think these measures will actually go down amongst the Irish public, Jim? Do you think that there is widespread support for these kinds of things going on at Dublin Airport again? Uh, yeah, I, I, I honestly think that many people would be in favour of checks at the at the airport, as in PCR or antigen tests. Um, I, I, I definitely think there'd probably be more support for that than opposition to it. Um, and, and that's out of, I think, a sense of ignorance because, uh, as you say, and I, th- I think, I, well, sorry, I do agree with you. Um, I don't believe those checks make any difference whatsoever in terms of impacting on the spread of COVID. So um, I, I think it's a mistake, but I think it's uh, there. There is a rump of the population here um, that still agrees with and goes along with everything government decides in relation to COVID, regardless of how stupid, ham-fisted it actually is. Um, and, you know, some stuff that has been done has been good. Some has been absolutely awful. Um, but I think some people just will support government regardless. Um, there is obviously um, a, a, a more vocal body of opinion totally opposed to everything the government is doing in relation to COVID. Uh, but uh, I, I, to be honest, Chris, I don't see uh, the restrictions being put on UK travellers coming into Ireland as creating any political backlash whatsoever. OK, well, that, that, that's interesting. Um, disappointing, because I would have hoped there would have been a backlash because of their stupidity. But I've long thought that we live in an age of stupid, Jim, in which uh, yeah. uh, the, these things happen. Uh, that I'm reminded of an article I read in all places, The Guardian, this week, which was a well-written piece, a well-researched piece, very emotionally intelligent piece written about a vaccine denier, very fit, youngish man, uh, didn't have any of the criteria for being vulnerable to COVID in any way, no underlying conditions. He was thin, he was very fit, wasn't old, and he died. And uh, it was a very moving piece. It was a real personal tragedy for the people, for the, obviously, for the family involved. It was written very much from the perspective of his twin sister. So that's one of the things that made it particularly poignant. But what was really good about this article is that it really tried in a non-judgmental way to explore the reasons why this chap had been a vaccine denier. And it's, it's well worth a read because... It speaks to the age that we live in. And if I somewhat pejoratively say we live in an age of stupid, I apologise if I've insulted anybody. But it's but this article got to the heart of one individual. It, it, this may or may not have general applicability. I think it does. It doesn't explain everything. But the way in which this guy got his information about vaccines was really interesting. And it kind of speaks to the way we all get our information these days. And it, the, the article went into, inevitably, the way this guy trusted 
social media and the information that he was getting from that in a way that people in the past would have trusted, first of all, their family and friends giving them information. And we don't do that so much anymore. And so the first stop for people, how they get their data, how they get their beliefs, how they get their knowledge is, is social media. And uh, whereas before you and I, Jim, will know that sitting around the dinner table with our family, sitting in the pub with friends, if we came out with a whole load of bollocks, we would be called out on it by our family, by our friends around the dinner table. Around the, and we'd be used to that challenge that our ideas were, in fact, very, very weak and had no basis in fact. And th- this article explored the way in which this guy got his ideas from social media and uh, accepted them for being gospel. And in the end, of course, recanted, but it was but it was too late. And I think that's where a lot of us do get our ideas from these days, from sources that are non-traditional and um, are never called out. The information bubbles that we live in, it's, it was a very sad story, but I think it explains in part in that non-judgmental way is it answers the question, well, where, you know, if, if where are our trusted sources of information these days? And if your answer is social media, then frankly, you're doing something wrong and something somewhere in our society has gone wrong in a very, very big way. Jim, I don't know whether you want to say anything about that, but uh, I'd better shut up at that point because I know we're running up against our time constraint. Uh, anything left, do you think? Uh, no, I um, I was kind of exposed to a, uh, a WhatsApp group um, that turned out to be basically a share of anti-vaxxers. And um, I was astounded by... Uh, the sort of information that was being shared on that and the sort of views that were being formulated. And um, it was all being driven by social media. Um, I exited the group politely, uh, but it was quite disturbing to see some of the stuff um, out there. And I'm not saying uh, it's just the anti-vaxxers that are, are getting all this wrong information. You know, every spectrum of society is being grossly misinformed by social media at the moment. And um, it is extremely worrying because um, it's 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 it becomes a truth, and and that's always very very dangerous. We get to choose our own truth these days. We Jim. do indeed, that's... yeah, absolutely. And nowhere was that demonstrated more than in the case of Brexit. Absolutely, um, as it goes on and on. Okay, Jim, good to talk Thank again. You, Chris. And um, speak again Have a soon. One. Bye. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please sign up to our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com. You can download our podcasts on Apple, Spotify and other good podcast platforms. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.